Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bugs. Hey everyone, Season 4 of the Performance Nutrition Podcast, bringing you evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to take your nutrition game to the next level. I have got a great episode for you all today. Dr. Ben Kirk, PhD, is on the show. Ben is a research fellow at the Australian Institute for Musculoskeletal Science, where he is part of the Geroscience and Osteosarcopenia Research Group. Ben holds an honorary research appointment at Western Health Sunshine Hospital, Division of Subacute and Aged Care. Ben's research focuses on identifying the risk factors, pathophysiology, diagnosis, and treatments for sarcopenia, loss of muscle mass and function, and osteosarcopenia, loss of bone density and muscle mass and function, to avoid falls and fractures in older populations. Really, really fascinating discussion here with Ben today. Definitely highlighting that ethos that movement truly is medicine. And of course, how we fuel does play a huge role in this. Ben's going to share today some insights on the connection between sarcopenia and osteoporosis, the crosstalk that occurs between muscle and bone cells, screening tools for clinicians to assess for osteosarcopenia, as well as nutritional interventions and where the evolution of research in osteosarcopenia is headed. Fantastic. This episode is sponsored by my best-selling book, Peak. We've actually hit 15 months in a row as an Audible number one bestseller. So massive, massive thank you to everyone out there for all the support. And of course, if you enjoyed Peak, the Peak online course is ready to launch November 1st. So if you want to take a deeper dive into some of the content of the book, get into some live Q&As, with some of the experts from the book, as well as myself. We really want to make this an interactive online course, a foundations course in performance nutrition. So if you're a strength coach out there, nutritionist, personal trainer, practitioner, whether it's a chiro, physio, etc., and you want to upgrade your performance nutrition skills and earn some continuing education credits along the way, then definitely check this out. You can sign up for the pre-sale list at athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org. There'll be some great discounts for the first wave of enrollment, so definitely sign up to that pre-sale list to be the first to hear when it drops. All right, Season 4, Episode 16 with Dr. Ben Kirk. Ben, thanks so much for taking the time today. Hi, Mark. No problem. It's um, it's a pleasure to be invited on. As I said to you before, I've heard, I've heard good things and looking forward to sharing some knowledge bombs, hopefully. Fantastic. Well, knowledge bombs are, uh, are very well accepted here, so this is tremendous. And I think a great place to start would be just to tell listeners a little bit more you know, about your background and your journey into your current role. Yeah, well, currently I'm employed as a clinical researcher at the Australian Institute for musculoskeletal science and that's affiliated with the medical department at the university of melbourne so yeah it's a lot of words there but basically what i do on a day-to-day basis is i try test and both validate diagnostic and therapeutic approaches 
to muscle and bone loss with aging. So a, t- a term now what we call osteosarcopenia. Um, so uh, that could be from running longitudinal trials. So looking at data over time in people and how muscle and bone loss occurs to then looking at therapeutic clinical trials and then looking at risk factors actually that we're a university hospital. So look at patients that come to the hospital as well and, and what's causing them to have falls and fractures, you know? Absolutely. I mean, this is an area where you know, I deal a lot in men's health and a lot of men as well, the 50, 60, 70 plus in this area of osteosarcopenia, obviously affecting you know women as well. Um, but it's an area that's, you know, if you have family members or colleagues that have been affected by uh, a fall um, and how that can change the quality of life in all areas of life for individuals. So, you know, maybe before we dive into that end, maybe we can just zoom back out and and become a bit more familiar with this term osteosarcopenia because I'm sure a lot of coaches listening in and practitioners um, familiar with osteoporosis, sarcopenia. Can you tie that connection in a little bit uh, more clearly for us? Yeah, absolutely. So I think a lot of the listeners will be familiar with, as you, as you mentioned, the term osteopenia or osteoporosis. So that was defined over back in, when was it, 1980, as the age-related loss of bone. Um, it causes fragility to bone and predisposes to fractures. But then more recently, in 2015, sarcopenia has come to light. So it was actually first coined back in 1990 by a gentleman, Dr. Erwin Rosenberg, and sarcopenia is the Greek words, Greek words for flesh loss. But then that's come to light that sarcopenia actually is a clinical condition that also causes falls and fractures. So sarcopenia is to muscle, what osteoporosis is to bone. So it's the weakening, the loss of muscle mass, and then the weakening of that contractile protein that predisposes to falls and fractures. Now we have a group of patients that, a subset of patients that actually have both of the conditions. And it's been termed recently as osteosarcopenia. Uh, and this is both the, the impact on, on an individual's mobility and quality of life and the impact on healthcare expenditure is ginormous with this condition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, with the aging population, I mean, we're seeing you know, about a doubling over the next 20 or 30 years, 2 billion people by the year 2050 estimations. Um, obviously, as you mentioned, greater number of falls, fractures, hospitalizations, even just um, increased risk factors for other conditions. You know, if we look at root causes here, you know, some of the pathophysiology of osteosarcopenia between genetics, between just having that physical load, protein turnover, hormonal factors, can you touch on a few of those and and explain how they would potentially be uh, implicated with osteosarcopenia? Yeah, definitely. So when we look at risk factors, well, we know that advancing age and getting older is a risk factor for every disease under the sun. And that's, <laughs> yeah. because, and that's because... We can slow aging, but we can't reverse it yet, right? Exactly, yeah. Every organ deteriorates to some degree, if it be your heart, your muscle, your bone, lung capacity, etc. Um, so obviously, advancing age is a risk factor for this condition. And then more environmental factors would be physical inactivity or reduction in physical activity and then poor nutritional status or malnutrition and we talk about those nutrients we think of what you need for your muscles 
um, in terms of protein. And then we think in terms of what you need for your bone, which is both calcium and vitamin D, um, and a reduction in those nutrients over time will predispose to both sarcopenia and osteoporosis because of the role of these nutrients play. But the overarching one here is physical inactivity. And if you looked on a graph, what happens to your muscle and bone mass over time, that would show a linear decrease. Um, so when we talk in terms of, let's focus on bone here for a second, we know you have two types of bone. We have the trabecular, the one inside the spongy type, and then you have the cortical bone on the outside. And these both decrease across the lifespan. And you can lose by age 80 up to 50% of your overall bone mineral density. And obviously that predisposes then to a fall and a fracture. Now at the same time, your muscle mass and strength goes down as well after about the third decade of life. That's around 1% per year for muscle mass. And then they're about somewhere between 2 and 3% per year of muscle strength loss. So it's a bit more accelerated. So if you had a graph, like I mentioned, and you looked at muscle mass, muscle strength, and the amount of bone an individual has, that line would just be slowly going down across the lifespan. But when we hit around the fourth or fifth decade of life, so let's say a middle-aged adult, that's when it begins to creep up a little bit. And that is just because the obvious one is people are more become more inactive in their day-to-day lives during that period. And then again, that'll hit at a higher threshold so that line will go down again linearly when we around age 60 up to age 80. And again, that is because we are more inactive. There's poor nutritional status and then individuals become institutionalized. So either they might have a period hospitalization where they could be bed bound and they could be even during that period, you could be losing a lot more muscle uh, and to a degree some bone as well. So then again, it predisposes you to osteosarcopenia or you could be in a, a care home somewhere, a care home facility where there's poor, there's low activity, activity levels. We know that in those care homes and the nutrition isn't the best either. So you're lacking those nutrients, which we talk about. So really the main ones are aging, are physical inactivity and poor nutrition. And then you have other factors as well, which we know now. And one of them is fat infiltration of both bone inside the bone marrow and inside the muscle fibers and around the muscle fibers so in the opposite direction to what happens with your muscle mass your strength and your bone as it goes down across the lifespan we've actually shown now different groups around the world that fat infiltration actually goes up across the lifespan and that fat inside the tissue can actually break down the healthy muscle cells and the bone cells at doing their job properly. So turning over every day and holding on to the contractile protein or be it the um, the bone density of that tissue. Um, and that's actually independent as well of obesity levels. So if you have abdominal obesity, let's say, it, you, fat infiltration of muscle and bone is actually a risk factor for falls and for uh, a fracture or a fall independent of your overall obesity. So it seems to be this very specific type of fat infiltration that's definitely creeping into different organs and in osteosarcopenia that is apparent also. Now, And Ben, if I jump in we, quickly, is that something that one might see with certain conditions or are there other factors that are associated with that infiltration or comorbidities? Well, again, 
yes, there could be some comorbidities that accelerate that. So, but again, that could be so sarcopenia is prevalent in individuals that have different comorbidities, diabetes, cancer, and so on. But actually, that is a natural process as well that we found in the natural population. Um, it goes up, but again, it's accelerated in different circumstances. And that's all we know really about about that filtration at the moment. Uh, so good. then we yeah, talk about, it was, I mentioned as well, other secondary causes of osteosarcopenia. Um, like I mentioned, it could be comorbidities or other diseases. It could be things like corticosteroid use is definitely a risk factor. So the, the medication corticosteroids for both bone loss and muscle loss. And that is because it's shown to increase myostatin um, in both tissues. And then myostatin can lead to protein degradation, breakdown mm -hmm. in muscle over time and a reduction in bone forming cells. So the osteoblast doing their job in bone that um, keep it turning over and maintain the bone density. Um, and then you have all the, the hormone decreases as well. So the different sex hormones, testosterone in men, hypogonadism, so low testosterone levels is a risk factor for the loss of muscle mass and bone as well, both tissues simultaneously. And then obviously in females, you have a, a decline in estrogen, estrogen levels. Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, in, in midlife you think of, Maybe in the 40s, if people have a young family, um, work is busy, all of a sudden the exercise component starts to be, you know, there's a lack of time. And so exercise tends to get sacrificed. Um, the nutrition becomes more challenging as well with this lack of time. And all of a sudden when people get into their, you know, into their 50s, you know, these become habits. I and mean, we don't, the nutrition isn't on point. There's a lack of activity. As you mentioned, there's going to be... Um, changes in hormones, whether it's uh, perimenopausal, menopausal women with estrogen declines, whether it's men who simply, you know, lack of sleep, busy, stressful lives, you know, we can start to see that testosterone lowering as well. We're sort of setting ourselves up for an increased risk of some of these factors. And, you know, you talked about these, you know, various primary, secondary factors. Uh, in your paper, you talk about this muscle and bone crosstalk via things like the myokines, osteokines, adipokines. Can you dive into that a little more with listeners? Yeah, so basically on a, on a very basic level of, of muscle and bone biology, we know that mesenchymal stem cells, um, so muscle cells, myocytes, which are called muscle side, uh, myocytes, and bone cells, which are osteoblasts, they both come from the same adult stem cell. So the genetic and the biological underpinning of the stem cell, or sorry, the, the myocytes, the muscle cells, and the osteoblasts that come from that, they have some crossover. Um, so they have some similarities. And most of this data, when we look at the crosstalk between muscle and bone cells, has been done in rodent models. That is a limitation of, and that's something we need to look more at, at in human models. But they have shown in different circumstances that there's a certain uh, a number of growth factors and factors that break down as well that come from bone to muscle and impact it, and then vice versa that get released through muscle fibers. Something like IL six, interleukin six, for instance, after exercise has both a autocrine and paracrine effect. So IL six will, when it's released by muscle, it will act on the muscle fiber as well to do a number of 
different things in energetics. And then at the same time, it can actually um, crosstalk to the bone and activate a number of factors there, i.e. an increase in bone density. So when we think of how physical physical activity, for instance, loading the muscle or bone through weightlifting or resistance exercise, whichever one you want to call it, we know that that weight by contracting the muscle will then stimulate bone forming, so will vibrate off the bone and stimulate bone forming cells as well. But we know there's definitely some crosstalk locally as well as some other factors that happen. And this is probably best illustrated by studies that if you took a um, bone tissue and a fractured tissue, and then you put muscle flaps over that, the bone tissue, the fracture, will heal faster when you put the muscle flaps over it. So that Incredible. suggests there that definitely the muscle cells, the myocytes, are doing something. They're talking to the bone and they're speeding up that recovery. So when we think of the pathophysiology of osteosarcopenia, like I mentioned, you have risk factors, your age, poor nutrition, low physical activity, some genetic factors as well, like the vitamin D receptor, polymorphisms in the vitamin D receptor, both in muscle and bone, they might be causing as well. But then the other factor is what you're mentioned here. And this is crosstalk between these cells released by muscle and bone tissue and how they talk to each other and vice versa. But again, it's early days with that. And it is just in rodent models that we've been able to investigate this in preclinical studies. So it's a really fascinating area of research, but we are learning more about all these um, these endocrine cells that talk to each other and paracrine, autocrine responses on both tissues. And we do think it has a key role as well in the pathophysiology of this condition. Absolutely. I mean, it's fascinating stuff and it's incredible, really reinforcing how fundamental movement is to health and medicine. And it really is a, you know, a key uh, tool to be used to be able to support health and, and fight off conditions and, when we look at osteosarcopenia, if we talk about things like screening and you've mentioned various risk factor identification, you know, what are some of the um, risk factors and, again, the, the screening tools that a clinician might use to, to start to categorize people into different risk categories um, when they're coming in for their physicals at, again, 50 or 60, 70 years old? Yeah, so this is where it gets difficult of putting it into clinical practice. And we're really trying to push for clinicians and in different hospital settings to assess for osteosarcopenia and then diagnose it if they meet the criteria. So when we first look at the muscle part of osteosarcopenia, to measure muscle mass, you can use or estimate muscle mass, I should say, you can measure lean body mass on the DEXA scanner. Mm-hmm. And then if that is below a certain score, so if it's two standard devi- deviations um, below the, the mean value for a 20 to 30 year old, both a male and a female, um, then you can categorize that as that individual as sarcopenic. And that would be a long with either low grip strength or gait speed. So you can measure their their gait speed over four meters. And we have cutoffs for that if it's below 0.8 meters per second. And if their grip strength is below certain values, again, of a young in comparison to a young healthy cohort, um, they can be diagnosed with a sarcopenia component. And then when we look at the osteopenia, osteoporosis, the bone side of osteosarcopenia, we can again use that DEXA scanner and quickly get an estimate of their bone mineral density 
and their T-score. And then together, those can be identified then as they could be just osteopenic or sarcopenic, or they could have have both conditions simultaneously. And then we, we give them a di- diagnosis of osteosarcopenia. And then from there, it's about implementing um, different rehabilitation strategies. But that's something that we hope over the next decade or so, we're going to be able to push into hospitals universally and get them back out there and look at both prevention and treatment strategies because the actual expenditure of this condition is just is overwhelming really when we know things like cardiovascular diseases and cancers are ginormous killers in the world and there's no doubt about that and so much money gone into that but when you in terms of of osteosarcopenia it could affect up to 20 or 30 percent of the Australian population, for instance, over the age of 65, and it can increase their falls and fractures by four or five folds. And it really can confer devastating consequences. When we take uh, an individual with a hip fracture, for instance, we know that an older adult with a hip fracture that could be caused by osteosarcopenia, the loss of muscle and bone, one in three of those older adults will die within 12 months of experience a hip fracture. So that is obviously devastating for them, but also Absolutely. The, economic, the economic cost of this condition as well. If you look at, it was noted in the Australian healthcare system that no other single cause of injury, and that includes emergency road trauma accidents, costs the Australian healthcare systems more than hip fractures does. And hip fractures or at least strengthening the muscles and the bones is not rocket science. And if they put in these rehabilitation strategies or prevention early on or these treatment strategies where we can get at the, the adequate nutrition, get at the, the good rehabilitation to increase muscle and bone mass, you can both prevent and treat this condition. What's, what needs to be done, though, from a research side is we're looking for that drug compound as well to both complement exercise and the, the dietary strategies, but also for individuals that don't, maybe maybe they do have a hip fraction, they can't do any exercise. Mm-hmm. Is there another compound there that can facilitate or slow down? Um, is there a pharmaceutical compound that can slow that down? And one of those, kind of going off on a tangent here, but one of those is denosumab, so prolia, which is, a bone anti-resorbative and mm-hmm. it's been it's it's patent for bone it's made by amgen it's been around for like, i think the last two decades don't quote me on that but it's been used extensively to, to slow the loss of bone mineral density and very effectively and we've actually published one study and another group out of vienna have published a study showing that actually denosumab is working on muscle as well so now we're going to be running. To, yeah, so we're going to be. It's very preliminary data, I will say that, but it's, show, it's showing good promise from these two studies so far. So now we're going to be running a new double blind clinical trial, getting patients who are osteosarcopenic, have low bone mass, low bone, bone mineral density, and we're going to see if this pharmaceutical compound can impact positively both, both on muscle and bone, and can that ultimately stop hospitalization, falls, and fractures in these individuals that are predisposed to it. Yeah, I mean, hundred percent. As you mentioned, there obviously resistance training exercise so important, and for a lot of individuals who can't do that, a pharmacological intervention could be an absolute game changer. And if we, you know, dovetail now and talk about some of those nutritional interventions that we could start to 
to lay in with clients, particularly you know years in advance when some of these red flags start to show up. If you're especially if you work in uh, you know as a, as a trainer or a strength coach or in rehab and uh, GP and start to see some of these things, you, know, you outline some of the nutritional aspects, things like protein intake, calcium, vitamin D, you know, even creatine. Can you speak a little bit to those uh, different elements and what some targets might be for for practitioners or clinicians? Yeah, definitely. So I think the most important nutrient out of them is probably your protein intake, and it's probably the most well-established. Now, older adults at the moment, on with those with a, a decline in muscle health, let's say those populations in care homes, institutionalized, um, living by themselves in, the, in communities being shown, across different populations worldwide that they're consuming around 0.6 grams by their body weight per day mm-hmm. to around 0.8 grams per day. Now, the government recommendations pretty much universally all over the world are somewhere around 0.75 to 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight for protein. But there's various groups that have shown now, again, for the last, since the early 2000s, one group particularly Stuart Phillips which should be mentioned which has done pioneering work in this area mm-hmm. but they've shown that as your muscle gets older it becomes more resistant to absorbing the protein and you need a bigger bang for your buck basically in terms of protein synthesis to maintain a positive balance of po- protein in the muscle um, so you need a higher intake of protein and they've shown now uh, we have shown as well that throughout both epidemiological studies so looking at people over time 10, 20 years, 30 years that take a higher intake of protein after you adjust for other factors, those with a higher intake of protein seem to preserve more lean body mass or muscle mass. And then in clinical trials, the benefits of protein at starving off the loss of muscle are quite quite strong. So there's no dispute really that an an intake of protein now of about 1.2 grams to 1.5. So really up to could be double the recommended amount by the government and older adult needs that just to maintain preserve or regain let's say what they've lost um in earlier life so protein take is massive yeah it's it's incredible um i had a theo spoglu on um maybe a year and a half ago and t- talking just as you mentioned around the, the protein targets for older individuals and and the you know the different potential strategies even around gels or different protein um, delivery mechanisms to be able to provide some of the boluses um, in, a, in a more sort of convenient and um, you know, easy to consume manner for you know particularly older individuals who are in care homes and whatnot to be able to get that in because obviously appetite and things like that start to impact that but it's uh it is amazing when you think that yeah the typical client might be consuming less than the rda and, and we're going to need one and a half to two times that to really support this right absolutely and when we talk about protein intake probably the three important the three t's i like to call them or i always refer to them in talks during my phd is the total amount that an older adult needs and that's like i mentioned nearly double the rda so it could be from 1.2 to 1.5 grams per kilogram per day of body weight and that's what most expert consensus consensus groups around the world both in the medical world, in the physiology world, that they recommend. Mm-hmm. And then well, when we look at the type of protein, we know that, again, you get a bigger bang for your buck when it comes from animal sources of protein. 
um, things like dairy products, chicken, meat, lean meats. You get you get the, the highest um, bang for your buck in terms of muscle protein synthesis. And then I think sup- I'm a food first approach kind of guy, but I think supplement industry definitely can help can target for older adults because they have issues with malabsorption. They have poor dental health. Some of them, their appetites are low, especially when you di- consider these diagnosed patients that are almost frail and have difficulties walking. We're not talking about a healthy older adult here. Mm-hmm. And that is where the type of protein can come in. So things like whey protein is very fast absorbing. And again, it, it maximally stimulates muscle protein synthesis. And one of the key amino acids that you need amongst the whey protein is leucine as well. Um, so your body, you've got, there's 20 amino acids out there, nine essential amino acids your body needs from exogenous sources. So in terms of, of food, and then indigenously, your body produces the other 11 out of 20. But one of those key ones out of the nine essential amino acids is leucine. Um, and that, that's very high in dairy products. So we need to find something that is both um, palatable for an older adult, something they like, and is convenient as well for these ones that I've mentioned that find it hard to get in to eat foods and to get in this nutrients. And again, touching on dairy dairy products, maybe a bit biased here, but an older adult also needs a higher intake of vitamin D, both for muscle and bone. Um, and calcium as well. So we recommend around 800 to 1,000 IU per day. Mm-hmm. And that is to stay above your, your vitamin D levels of your blood work of 50 nanomoles per liter. That's below there is a deficient level. And that's when you have some problems. Um, so 800 to 1,000 IU of vitamin D, along with calcium as well, the International Osteoporosis Federation recommends around 1,000 to 1300 milligrams per day of calcium and when you think of a dairy product like a glass of milk you get a bang in there with protein whey protein a little bit of calcium or um, casein you get a good proportion of whey to casein you get vitamin d and calcium in that one beverage so there's a very nutritious package there dairy products and i think that might be a fortifying dairy products might be a good way forward for those older adults like i mentioned which have poor issues taking in foods 100 percent. i mean the convenience factor alone of just being able to pour a glass of milk and you know in working with older clients you know trying to get them to start to go from a cup to a pint you know and then you know adjusting their cereal or toast intake to suit that because oftentimes it tends to be more the tea and toast diet as as individuals get older and especially 70 plus and trying to get them back to to more of those convenient foods, as you mentioned, things like a you know glass or pint of milk. Now, what about uh, things like creatine? Where does that layer in in terms of obviously for better able to hit our one point two to one point five grams per kilo, then we're going to be consuming more creatine. But is there a role there for supplementation? Is it simply from uh, increasing food sources? Yeah, again, uh, meat products are high in creatine. Why don't you go back to the physiological basis of creatine? Obviously, is um, the Krebs cycle it facilitates the replenishment of phosphocreatine and allows an older adult, if they're performing some kind of loading exercise, strength exercise, to replenish quicker. And then their their work output is, be- is better. And then, therefore, they can gain more strength and more mass. But also, creatine has been looked at at bone and it's shown some positive. Again, it's early, but it's shown some positive benefits on bone mineral density. So, we think creatine definitely with with resistance training. That's why we recommend it because we know it's 
substantially proven to show benefits on muscles so um, sure. muscle loss and in the bone in the bone industry if you want to call it, it it's starting to show some promise as well so yeah getting in we recommend three to five grams of creatine per day now to get that in it could be done through supplementation food products but again i, I think supplementation would be the way to go so if you did have some cocktail there like you mentioned nutritious cocktail where you have you get a good bash of protein, vitamin D, calcium, and creatine. It would be fantastic. And if that beverage also was user-friendly in terms of taste, because it's the most important thing for an adult. Yeah, absolutely. Um, then that would be would be fantastic, you know. And while nutrition definitely complements the resistance side of things, the physical activity, there's no doubt that to prevent or treat osteosarcopenia Physical activity is king and nutrition is queen in that arena, but it definitely mm-hmm. does complement it. Yeah, it is incredible if you look around at you know hunter gatherer populations or some of the quote unquote blue zones around the world or places where we have the most centenarians and you know movement and physical activity is just baked into the cake of how they're they're daily living and, and you know you see seventy year olds and eighty year olds and how they move in, in some of these areas and it's it's pretty it's in stark contrast to what you'd see in most of the quote unquote developed countries, whether you're in you know the UK, Canada, US, a lot of places in Europe. And so that movement piece is, is, is massive. And, you know, obviously you've done a lot of work with your previous work and your PhD with muscle weakness, which is again, as you've touched on a, a big part of the issue here, because if we're getting weaker, as we get older, we're more likely to have falls as we've talked about previously, the cost in terms of the healthcare system is in the billions. It's just in- incredible. And, you know, as you mentioned, once you get past the age of, well, even 40, but especially 50 onwards, that rate of uh, muscle loss starts to, to increase. Can you talk a little bit about this connection between, you know, muscle weakness, longevity and quality of life and some of the things that you uncovered in your work? Yeah, definitely. So as you mentioned, when I did my PhD, it was surrounding musculoskeletal science, exercise physiology and nutrition all in one in a clinical trial really. But it was focused on muscle and sarcopenia. And I I, I moved into the bone field as well. So or working with Professor Gustavo Duke, who's both a biomedical scientist and he's actually a clinician as well. So he, he's very much from bench to bedside. But he now has introduced me to this concept of a bone as well. So he's teaching me. That's, and that's basically why I moved halfway across the world to learn more about osteosarcopenia. But yeah, back to my, my PhD was focused just on, on muscle loss, on muscle weakness and sarcopenia. So we ran a clinical trial. And what we did was we wanted to see, really, it was the biggest one done in the UK so far, and there was a, a lack of trials done where we took a group of older adults who were physically inactive at the time. They were predisposed to muscle weakness, muscle loss. They were on a downward trajectory and at risk of falls and fractures. And we wanted to see what happens when you provide them, excuse me, resistance exercise alone, or you give another group resistance exercise plus a higher intake of of protein. And then what happens as well for those individuals who, let's say, for some reason they can't engage in physical activity, we wanted to see can protein alone preserve muscle loss and muscle weakness across a certain time period. So we also had a protein group alone, and then we had a control group, which unfortunately for them, once they're randomized to that group, they don't get any intervention. 
So just to reiterate there, we had a control group who did nothing. We took a group that did physical activity, resistance exercise. Then we took a group that did physical activity plus uh, a higher intake of protein, and then a group that took protein alone. And we did a battery of measures at baseline, and that was in terms of muscle mass measures. It was in terms of upper and lower body muscle strength measures. Then we looked at their electrical activity of the muscle as well, of different muscles, their upper limb and lower limb. And that was through electromyography, so EMG. You look at how well they can fire those muscles before and after these treatments. And we also looked at some cardiovascular outcomes as well. We looked at blood markers, cholesterol levels, hormones, lots of different things. Now, the end result of that trial showed that we showed that an improvement in both muscle health in terms of the amount of mass, the strength, the electrical capacity of the muscle all increased in these individuals that were previously inactive. And after the intervention, they substantially improved their muscle health and then were at a reduction of falls and fractures. And we didn't show in that trial that the added pro or the protein alone group, it, they their muscle mass and their strength didn't change, whereas the control group actually went down. So there's some suggestive there that there's some suggestions that the protein intake alone was able to preserve over a period of four months, mm -hmm. preserve their, their muscle mass and the, the strength of that tissue. It just didn't change in comparison to the control group. They lost leg strength. And remember, this is a very well-controlled, randomized cl clinical trial. Um, so, so there's quite good evidence there now and from other studies that, as I mentioned from the start, if you perform resistance exercise and you take in more protein, you're going to get a bigger bang for your buck in terms of muscle mass and strength in comparison to resistance exercise alone. And then maybe perhaps if you, for some reason, you're bed bound or you have another clinical condition and you can't do exercise, a higher intake of protein definitely for muscle metabolism is going to protect what you have there in terms of the contractile proteins, which you need every day just to, for mobility to move around, get out of a chair, climb up a stairs for an older adult, and make sure that they don't slip over a curb or something and get a fracture, you know? Yeah, that's, a, you know, obviously even seemingly more timely as well under the current situation with COVID-19 and people being homebound and, and not moving as much and not going to the gym as much or getting their resistance exercise in and perhaps likely their nutrition changing as well with if they weren't getting enough protein in to start with if their meal frequency has come down or they're not consuming enough you know this is sort of adding on to the to the problem a little bit and then when we look at you know the, the evolution of research in this area you know where where is your research going where is the field going in the next you know five or ten years yeah, that's a great question. Well, I can briefly tell you, just maybe touching on where I'm going from this going forward, the, the studies that I have lined mm -hmm. up. Um, so we have just got access to an, an American database called Mr. Oz. So it's a longitudinal trial in older men between the ages of 70, 80, 70 to 80. And we track their muscle and bone every three months for over that time period and it also looks at the amount of hospitalization falls and fractures over that time period and we're very interested in 
when we look at bone loss and muscle loss, so osteoporosis and sarcopenia, and that leads to osteosarcopenia, which one occurs first? Does somebody lose bone and then they then they lose muscle and then they develop osteosarcopenia? Or is it they lose muscle mass first and then bone and then they lead to osteosarcopenia? Now, when we look at the percentage of, of muscle loss and bone loss across the lifespan, it would suggest that bone occurs at a slower, bone loss occurs at a slower rate. So that would suggest that sarcopenia actually occurs first before, develops first before osteoporosis and then leads on to osteosarcopenia. And that hypothesis as well comes from if you take an individual and throw them into a bed for 10 days and make sure that they don't move at all, we know that they're mo- they'll lose more muscle mass over that time period than they will bone. But what we're trying to do, obviously, is establish the evidence of this in an older adult cohort. So I'm going to be looking at the a life course approach, basically, from the ages of 70 up to maybe 90. And we're going to look at the transition rates of people losing muscle and bone and leading to osteosarcopenia. And then we're going to look at as well how many falls and fractures they've had in hospitalizations throughout that year. And we're also going to be looking at what biomarkers, so in terms of hormones, are linked to muscle and bone loss and linked to osteosarcopenia at this stage. So that's one of the epidemiological studies that I'm working on with the National Institute of Health on Aging and with a collaborator, Peggy Cawthorn, from a university in San Francisco medical department. And then I'm going to be running two different clinical trials. One of them looking at a pharmacological marker to see if it can, or pharmacological compound to see if it can improve muscle and bone mass in osteosarcopenic patients and reduce falls and fractures. And I'm also going to be looking at a nutritional cocktail, if you want to call it, or a supplement, which has benefits, we hope for benefits for both muscle and bone. And this is in randomized double blind clinical trials in patients that are diagnosed with osteosarcopenia and then we look at the very important outcomes as well in terms of falls and fractures so that's what health policy want to know they don't particularly want to know if you put an individual on this intervention do they increase their muscle mass their strength and their bone mass Mm -hmm. but they want to know the key the hard outcomes in terms of hospitalizations falls fractures cost benefit does this compound uh, pharmaceutical or nutritional compound does it work on ultimately reducing falls, fractures, mortality rates in these individuals. And that's then going forward, we can try to translate that into health policy. I can't really mention what those those drug compounds are. Or say, can we twist your arm here? No, nutritional <laughs> beverage, but it's probably along the lines of what my recommendations are um, or what I've talked about on, on so far. So there, basically, that's one from an epidemiological study, and then there's one from a, uh, a double-blind clinical trial that I'm going to be going ahead with in the next few months and other things that we need to look at as well is can we get a blood biomarker for osteosarcopenia with high diagnostic value and that would be really incredible effective it would be incredible yeah so if we can get one of these markers so maybe it is a cell type that shows up in your blood and is indicative of declining muscle and bone health so it's a quick and reliable and it's a, a high di- diagnostic value, like I said, for a clinician. So then we can quickly um, put those individuals onto a rehabilitation program 
instead of going through this long process at the moment, which is measure their bone mineral density, measure their lean body mass by a DEXA scanner, take their grip strength, take their gait, gait speed, and then try to implement all of this stuff, which, which is um, a bit more cumbersome at the moment for clinicians when they consider you know, they're under-resourced and overburdened in a lot of places anyway. So it's very hard to, to push this into clinical practice at the moment. And then the final thing that I think needs to be done is probably after all this work is look at the, the synergistic effects of exercise training, of nutritional intervention and drug compounds at the same time. Can we get a, a triple bang for your book there in terms of benefit, cost to benefit? and of all these interventions on reducing your risk of osteosarcopenic outcomes, falls and fractures, mortality, hospitalizations. And ultimately what you want to do is improve an older adult's quality of life, their mobility, so then they can move around to socialize more. And we know if you socialize more, you're less chances of getting things like dementia and, and loneliness and so on, which is loneliness is the biggest killer of them all for an older adult. So that's the space we're working in at the moment or at least I foresee in the next few years while I'm here at the Australian Institute of, of Musculoskeletal Science. That's fascinating stuff, Ben. I mean, it's such an incredible field and obviously with an aging population so important and potential for some, some massive changes in the healthcare system and the benefits for patients and, you know, for myself and anyone listening in who's got older parents, it's obviously very topical as well or treating clients because you can really make a big a big difference with some of these interventions already. And of course, with what's coming down the pipeline, hopefully we'll uh, be able to influence them even more. So really appreciate you carving out some time today. If people want to keep up with your work, and we'll obviously link to your papers in the show notes, but people want to keep up with your work, where's the best place to, uh, to stay in touch with you? Yeah, so I'm pretty vocal on Twitter. So ask Doc, Dr. Ben Kirk, but I'm sure I'll put up the, or you'll put up the links for me yep. on this. Um, yep. But at Dr. Ben Kirk, if you want to look at my publications or some of my research that I've done, it can be accessed through ResearchGate. If you type my name into Google Scholar, you will see some publications that I've mentioned around this area. Uh, more, more recently on osteosarcopenia, previous publications were on sarcopenia from my PhD. But now we've got lots of medical reviews where people can, even non-scientific base, can, can read and it's quite e easy information to digest. And we've got a lot, I tried to put in lots of figures. So, you you know, it breaks down the risk factors, the pathophysiology and the treatments, which we recommend for this condition, which ultimately is very important now because we're trying to push it into clinical practice um, and get it and get it um, seen by, by clinicians and, and other people, other health professionals. But yeah, ResearchGate, Google Scholar or on Twitter, and also, my, there's a University of Melbourne expert page, which you type my name into into Google as well. It'll come up with my background, my bio, and um, a list of publications and what I do. And if there is anybody out there that's wanting more information, I'm happy to, in time, obviously, but take take some questions via email as well, which you'll be able to find easy enough on any of those websites. Amazing, Ben. Listen, thanks again for, for taking the time and uh, yeah, look forward to keeping, uh, keeping track of all your work coming up. No problem, Mark, and thank you very much for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. Quick announcement, the Peak Online course will launch November 1st and enrollment is now open. We've got 10 spots open at 50% off the regular price for podcast listeners. 
with your key to upskill your performance nutrition toolbox and increase the breadth of your performance knowledge, then head over to athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org to claim your spot or email carly at drbubs.com, C-A-R-L-Y at drbubs.com for more info. Awesome. I hope you enjoyed this fantastic episode. If you did, please share with one or two of your friends or colleagues and support the show by subscribing on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, or your favorite podcatching platform. Until next time. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcasts.